Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Law School Lounge podcast. This is a Carolina Academic Press production where we discuss everything law school. The Law School Lounge is a place for students and faculty alike to discuss law school and the law. We hope you'll hang out with us for a while. Welcome, welcome to the Law School Lounge. This is your host, Crystal Norton, and I am so glad that this week we are back with professors Kathy Vinson and David Romance to talk about advanced notes for CREAC or CREEK, the legal analysis and legal writing paradigm that they created in their book, Legal Analysis, the Fundamental Skill. Now, in this episode, we move beyond talking about the component parts of this legal writing paradigm, and instead, we talk about things like how to edit if you're using CREAC, how to use policy arguments in this type of structure, and how to effectively use CREAC beyond your initial introduction to it as a concept. We also spend some time talking about how style can come into play in Creek or Creac, and specifically how you might want to stay away from some of these style trends we might be seeing out in the world. And you'll hear in our conversation that Professor Romance is unclear about what I mean about this movement in style. And actually, the day that we recorded this episode, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals came out with an opinion where there was a case involving the Americans with Disabilities Act. And in a footnote, someone decided to quote Eminem song lyrics. And there was a lot of debate about whether or not this was appropriate, whether or not it took away from the opinion, whether or not it was professional, whether or not there were ethical issues. It really sparked a debate on X in particular. And so I sent the example after our conversation was like, this is what I was talking about. And even though they might not have had that sort of example in mind per se, their advice is phenomenal and it's directly on point. And it was in line with what a lot of people were talking about in this conversation, particular to this opinion, in a row of posts on X. And so whether you're a new writer, whether you are an advanced writer, whether you are a law clerk or a practitioner, All of their advice can really be taken to heart. And so I hope that you enjoy our discussion and I hope that you learn something. Thanks for listening. And now if we could kind of move into some advanced questions for our more, oh yes, our more advanced legal writers. React 2.0. That's right. That's right. So we've kind of given an overview of what the sections are and what goes into each. One thing that students definitely get hung up on is they have the general rule of law and then they're like, okay, what do I do? What, what, how do I expand my E section? What should go in there? Should I put this in there? There's all kinds of questions that arise with that. So could you dive a little bit deeper into that E section? Well, so much depends upon what they're writing and what the goal of the writing is. And so typically um, for uh, 
two and three L law students, advanced law students, they're they're probably writing more persuasively than predictively. And so the E section is so important for persuasive writing because it's the the student's opportunity to sort of not only explain what the law is, but to persuade the reader that this is what the law should be. This is the direction the law is going. This is how policy informs what the law ought to be. Um, and so the E section is extremely important and needs to be very thoughtfully done. And so uh, that section really is an opportunity for the student to say, well, here's my opportunity to persuade you that this is what the law is. Is there an ambiguity? Is there a vagueness? Is there some? Is there a different application of facts we're using here? Here's my opportunity to persuade the reader that this is exactly what the law needs to say. So when I apply that law to the facts of my case, you're going to see exactly where I'm going. And so it becomes, in my view, um, probably the most important part of the paradigm is a solid, well-thought-out, well-structured, persuasive e-section. Yeah, and I also think giving the reader the spectrum, like, you know, the cases that found one way and the cases that found the opposite way, so that when you get to the A section, you can clearly set out, is your facts more like this end of the spectrum or the other end of the spectrum? So even if it's persuasive, if there's some negative cases out there, it's better to explain them, and that way you can then distinguish them in your A than to just leave them out. So sometimes, you know, there's that inclination of, I'm just going to go with my best case. But it's the ease also to educate the reader so that they don't have to go out and do their own additional research. So by dealing head on with negative authority, um, you can then contrast it in your A section. So the E sets up the A. So as David was saying, if your E isn't complete, then it's not going to be a robust and thorough application when you get to the A section. And as someone who worked in immigration law, we dealt with a lot of statutes and regulations. Obviously, we also dealt with cases, but we usually started with a statutory analysis. Does that tend to look any different or what does that look like in an E section? Well, to, uh, sorry, Kathy, if you want to say I can just jump in real quick. So so if, if, it's, if the problem is going to be sort of really the application of a statute, it can be both much easier and much more difficult. It really depends upon um, the nature of the statute. If the statute is clear and there's there's no ambiguity, then it's simply a matter of applying facts to the statutory language to get your result. But we all know that statutes are rarely clear and there's very often ambiguity. And that's where lawyer skill is really the most important because it gives the lawyer the opportunity to sort of delve into the intent of Congress in order to make a persuasive argument that the statute means something that will benefit the client. And so the structure is the same, but the thought process is a little bit different when you're dealing with the statute. Yeah. You know, how do the cases interpret the statute? How are they interpreting maybe a word in the statute? Or um, what are some examples of, of cases that are interpreted one way and cases that are interpreted another way? So, you know, the statute is a starting point, but often not the end point, because if it's not clear, then we need to see the precedent interpreting and applying that statute to different situations in case law. So it might just be a little bit of a longer section is what I'm I'm gathering with like a little few more components. And one of those components, it sounds like, might be legislative history and or policy type arguments. So do those fit in the E section? Do they go somewhere else? What do those or where do those fit within Creek? Yeah, often um, policy is a lot of students say, you know, what is it, first of all? <laughs> and we have a chapter about that. Um, and where do I put it? And so policy could go in your R section. It could go in your E section because often that's 
a part of the court's reasoning is they're basing their, you know, their decision on policy to be consistent with policy. And then you can apply that policy in the A section with whatever you're predicting or trying to persuade the court to do. Is that consistent with the way that the policy has been applied in the precedent and would it further policy uh, in future cases? So it's re really throughout the Korea Creek. And policy arguments, I think, is really uh, uh, one way that students can get creative. So if they're right. limited by the structure of sort of straight on legal analysis using a Creek paradigm, I think policy can be very liberating because it's um, there's so many component parts to a good policy argument, and it really gives them sort of the challenge of sort of focusing where they want to go to persuade the reader where the law should go next. I'm going to preface this next question with you're probably going to say it depends, but I, I often have students want to put the policy stuff separate. Like they just want to either put that up front because they're like, oh, it's so compelling, or they want to finish off their complete section of analysis with just the policy argument, because that's something that they feel very passionate about usually, right? Because that's usually how policy arguments make a person, you know, that's what they invoke. So is that ever a good option? Or is it better? Do you feel to integrate it? How do you see it as being maybe its own separate creek? I think anything's possible, uh, as long as it's going to be easy for the reader to understand. And it's consistent with if they go back and look at, you know, the case law or the statutes or the history, um, it's supported there. I think the more in general you can synthesize for the reader, you're doing the work for the reader. So it's easier to write things sometimes when you just put everything separate because you don't have to do that you know, heavy lifting. But the more you can synthesize and streamline it for the reader, I think it's going to be easy for them to see how it fits into the overall you know, schema of the law. But you know, it doesn't mean you, can, it, you can't have it separate. Uh, it also depends, I think, on the writer's ability at, at that particular point in their journey. And it also, it could be a, like a separate creek. Right. So, um, as as Kathy said, it's it, it's it's a uh, it's it's such a useful sort of paradigm because it can fit really in any context. But I can see a student where um, maybe the law um, uh, does not um, give them maybe where something that will benefit their client, but maybe a policy argument would. And so you can structure a creek just around the policy itself, and the E becomes explaining what the policy is and how the court should apply it. And then the A is how that policy would influence the court's resolution of the case, and so. Um, it's all about flexibility, as Kathy said. It's all about sort of understanding the paradigm and then ha having confidence to sort of use it in all different sorts of contexts. No, thank you for clarifying that. I think a lot of people kind of struggle with that because you start with sort of the more traditional, I guess, legal arguments. You don't always bring up policy arguments, right? And then you get and in start introducing policy arguments and they're like, well, I just got used to putting all these pieces together. Now, where does this new piece fit? And so just knowing that there are different options and to kind of keep your mind open, but also keeping the creek structure in mind, I think is a good goalpost for students with as they face policy arguments. Now, we've also talked a lot about today sort of this outlining concept and going back if your C's are different or going back if you're missing a component. One of the toughest things to do for any person, legal writing or otherwise, is to edit your own work, right? So how do you recommend editing Creek writing specifically or effectively? Well, first, I have to understand the paradigm itself. <laughs> so I can, it's very sure. difficult for, a, for a, a beginning first year law student because if they're still sort of struggling with what it actually looks like, it's very difficult for them to sort of recognize 
that maybe um, they don't really have an E section or maybe their A section was too conclusory because they're not really sure about the paradigm itself. So I think that's key, sort of have some fundamental understanding about how it works. Um, but editing is the hardest part, Kathy, isn't that true? Yeah, I think uh, definitely going through and putting yourself in the shoes of the reader. And then, for example, you know, I always say print out a hard copy. Sorry, environmental lawyers. <laughs> uh, but and then interact with your document. Don't just, you know, spell check and look at it on the screen, but put in the margins. Where is your C? Then put where your R is, your E. Actually mark it up to see if you're actually following that organizational order. Then, you know, go a little bit deeper have a checklist, you know, where is your conclusion? Underline the actually objective or persuasive conclusion. Where is the because that summarizes your reasoning? You know, in your rule, do you go from general to specific? In your E, put FHR in the margins that you can actually identify the facts holding and reasoning that you've stated. Uh, and then the four points of the A that we mentioned before, you know, making sure you can identify those four different steps. The more you actually have to interact and identify not only just the creek or creak overall components, but then within each letter, going through and digging deeper to you know underline, circle, highlight to make sure that you actually can see it on the page as opposed to just in your head. Now, if you wanted to go one step further and maybe not just self-edit, you're, you've done all the self-editing you feel you can do. What are some tips for getting your work or how would you recommend people go about getting feedback on their work? One thing that I think is so important and can be such a useful exercise is to let somebody else look at your writing, another student look at your writing, because they'll be much freer <laughs> to get that pen out and really tear it up because it's hard for us to edit our own work because, you know, we, 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 we're reluctant to sort of criticize ourselves, whereas someone else objectively can be much more free in criticizing it. And so I think it's always a great exercise, even built into the class itself. Well, show your work to your neighbor let them have it overnight and then see what they have, I think is a, a very, very useful. Yeah, definitely peer review can be really helpful. There's also, you know, a lot of great technology now. Word rake can go through and rake your document for things like, you know, small scale editing stuff like passive voice, surplus words. Um, there's a lot of options in Word that students aren't even aware of to check off, you know, advanced kind of editing options where it will flag things for you so that it frees you up to focus on the analysis as opposed to the, the small scale editing, um, you know, contractions and normalizations and things like that. I used to recruit my non-law school friends <laughs> and I'd be like, could you just read this one page? If it was something that I, I knew something was like off, but I wasn't sure about it, I would have them read it because they are coming from a place of not knowing necessarily anything about the case. So if they're not going to be able to understand it or they need, they're like, well, you said this, but I don't understand why. I always felt that was a good part or a good way for me to start examining something I knew was off, but wasn't quite sure. Because even sometimes I would have my friends read something and because they implicitly knew maybe the facts or something, because we were all working on the same problem, Right they would not notice that I didn't say something because they already knew it. Right. And yeah. so if I knew I was missing a piece, that was usually my poor friends <laughs> making them read my boring memos and briefs, but they were, they were very helpful and I appreciated that from them. Um, and so whether you use CREAC for your writing assignments and legal writing and, and beyond is obviously something we've talked about. 
and we touched a little bit earlier about IRAC and how that might be fitting for exams. Do you use Creek on exams? Because that's what a lot of students need to know. They're like, what do I do with my exams? It would be uh, it'd be very, very tricky because in most exam writing, there isn't an E section. Most exam writing, identifying the issue, identifying the rule, applying the rule directly to the facts presented in the exam. And so there's, unless it's sort of like a, a bar exam type writing where they're given cases and they're given uh, things to actually look at to synthesize and apply I don't think Creek really fits into an exam writing format. And so I see, I hear students talk about it in the hallway, um, Creek in an exam context. And in fact, I have my own students when I'm doing an exam review and they, they talk about it in sort of that, that Creek kind of uh, paradigm. And it really just doesn't work. And I think that's frustrating for them because they think that we've been, they've been lied to, right? They were told Creek is the, is how to structure a legal analysis, but it doesn't really apply in many contexts. And I think exam writing is one of them. Yeah. I think it's, what's the purpose, right? And the purpose of an exam is to spot issues. So starting with the I too is, is more helpful where in a memo, if I said, you know, analyze whether our client's going to be guilty of burglary, I, I know what the issue is, right? You're not going to get any points by stating the issue is whether he's guilty of burglary. So, and also in, um, you know, exam classes, you're not learning the law of a particular jurisdiction, right? It's you're learning, you know, maybe the common law or, or cases from all different jurisdictions where the purpose of a memo is you're bound through stare decisis and precedent, you're bound to a particular primary binding authority. So the purpose is different. So you have to understand the purpose behind Creek or CREAC and IRAC or anything you're using to fit the needs of the audience. Great. And one question that students always kind of ask me is about whether or not IRAC or some other variation should be used for persuasive writing, right? And I'm always like, not really, right? You want to use something that starts with a C for your persuasive writing. And so given that exams tend to be more objective in nature, like you're reaching a conclusion, but you're not trying to persuade your reader. You're just giving them the analysis and information. I'd imagine that that's one of the other, even though Creek can be used in objective writing, right? Right. I think it's just a little, especially as like a first year law student, it would be a little overwhelming to kind of sort through all of that to kind of figure out what might work best. Um, but yeah, that's a question I always get. They're like, well, do I use IRAC for persuasive writing? Do I use CRAC? Do I use TRIAC? Do I, cause they start doing all their own research, right? right, right. right? And they come up with all these other things. Um, and so right. I think the purpose of your writing in terms of like objective or persuasive also can help you figure out what might work best for you as the person presenting the information in that given situation. But as far as, you know, moving beyond the classroom, right? So now we, we've talked about legal writing courses, we've talked about practitioners, we've talked about exams, but say you finally feel really comfortable with CREAC and you want to continue to build and master legal writing and you want to become, you know, Brian Gardner or someone or Kathy Vincent and David Romance, how do you move beyond CREAC? So the whole point of it was to provide uh, beginning law students with a way to sort of um, get their heads around the structure of a legal argument. It was really intended to be um, foundational. And so for me, once students understood sort of why it makes sense, 
then it can be easily manipulated and it can translate to really any context. And so moving beyond Creek for me is really moving beyond Creek. It's it stop thinking to not think about legal analysis as sort of a formula, but instead to have synthesized in your own head exactly what the point, what the parts are to make a persuasive analysis, to make a predictive analysis. And so once it sort of gets in their head, they won't need to think about where's my R, where's the E. It's a, it will be so intuitive at that point. So, so the question is moving beyond Creek, I think, is is just that. It's moving beyond Creek into sort of a much more a nuanced, sort of thoughtful presentation of the analysis, understanding how the basic structure works. Yeah, I think, um, you know, if you're dealing with an issue of like, what should the law be? Like, there is no law in this particular jurisdiction, or they're trying to de- debate whether what the particular rule should be. That's a little bit more sophisticated and not, might not fit neatly into a CREAC or CREAC uh, paradigm. So again, if you feel comfortable with the foundation, you should be able to manipulate it. Um, some students like to do EAEA, which at the beginning I said, whoa, let's let's walk before we run. But once you have that foundation, if they're distinct points, distinct concepts, then we have a part in the book called Beyond Creek where we give an example where EAEA, so it'd be CREA, <laughs> um, <laughs> would, would work, right? So it, it really depends on the situation and it's it's a starting point, um, but it's not, you know, it won't necessarily be something you have to use all the time in every situation, um, because maybe that won't fit the, the reader's needs. I had a student um, not too long ago who was uh, in an upper level writing course that was um, litigation drafting course. And they wrote whatever they were writing and they uh, were talking to me about sort of the writing process and asked me if I can look at it. And they warned me. They said, well, this is this is not Creek. And they said, well, you know, Creek was a one L thing. And this is this is not Creek. And I'm reading it. I'm saying, well, this is exactly Creek. (laughs) And it was so heartening because the student really was able to sort of intuit exactly how to structure the analysis. And I said, well, this is this is your C and, and then you gave the rules and then you explain the rules and then you apply the rules and then you conclude, I mean, you can just see the paradigm built into it. And to me, that's, that's the goal for students to sort of understand how the structure works and then not think about the formula to think about just how the structure makes perfect sense to a reader. And I thought it was so cool that um, the default for the student was to sort of creak out the analysis uh, when he insisted that he was not creaking it. Yeah, sometimes students are like, feel really constrained by it. And so then when you say, okay, you can do whatever, you know, you don't have to use Creek. They just default to it because it is such a kind of intrinsic way as a starting point. Right. So, um, and sometimes they really feel uncomfortable when you say, okay, do whatever it, you know, the, the, the reader needs. It often just goes back to Creek in just a slightly different format. And I've had some debates with my own colleagues um, who sort of bristle at the idea of, a formulaic approach, but through the discussion, when they're explaining to me their approach, it's Creek. Right. Uh, they're just, it's its more explanatory maybe for them. Um, so it's just very interesting how uh, just the, the natural sort of way that lawyers think about structuring an argument is always going to be some, some kind of Creek kind of paradigm, even if they're not thinking about it that way. Yeah. And I've never heard of a judge or a busy legal reader say it was just too clear. 
I wish you could make it clear. <laughs> I, was, right? I wish that I could have ever yeah. So when students are like, well, won't this be repetitive? And won't this, you know, and I'm like, I've never had anyone say that. Um, and that's I think one of the beauty of, of using Creek is it it's the clarity, it's the organization, it's the conciseness, but also the thoroughness. Right. Agreed. So here's another sort of building off of that question, if you don't mind. And it's related to style. So style has kind of really been like front and center recently, I guess. It's it's become very talked about. There's lots of books coming out about style and so on. And I think it's obviously when a first year student is starting with something like Creek, we're like, okay, we're not going to worry about style right now in terms of, you know, using analogies and so on. We're just focusing on getting what you need in there. But obviously, as you grow as a legal writer, you develop your own style. So how might you go about slowly integrating style or developing style beyond Creek in your legal writing? So I think you still also have to keep in mind the audience, right? And what their style is might not be what your style is. And, you know, you want to write the way you write, but, um, but not, you know, make the reader be confused. So, uh, or you want to be respectful of the reader. So like, if your style is, I'm going to use a lot of, you know, informal words and, you know, I'm going to put some emojis in there. And so, you know, I'm, I'm being extreme, but it still has to meet the parameters of whatever, you know, the audience purpose and the tone is. So I think you develop a style as you, and you have experience and that can be great and you shouldn't stifle, you know, your individuality, but you also still have to keep in mind, are you writing for yourself or are you writing for the reader? And that's the most important point. And so I'm not really sure I'm, I'm sort of up on sort of the style aspects, the, the new trend towards that. But good writing is good writing. I'm not sure there are stylistic differences between someone who is a, a, a strong writer. And so one of the hallmarks of good legal writing is brevity and succinctness because you're being respectful of your reader's time. And so if there is a style choice to sort of add flourish and repetition, um, I'm not sure that's necessarily a good thing. So um, I agree with everything Kathy just said. Now, in, in my opinion, I think as the Supreme Court becomes much more front and center and people are kind of reading more about what the Supreme Court's writing and they're like, oh, well, this justice writes really differently from this justice. And right. you can tell if you read a lot of their opinions, you can tell, oh, this justice wrote this opinion, you know, and right. it's always I think people want when it comes to style, they want they think more is better but it's definitely a subtle thing. And so with Creek, I would imagine it could work if you slowly start, you know, showing yourself in Creek and just continue to do that as you grow as a writer. So, um, Is that fair? Crystal, just Crystal, help me out. So do you say there's new books coming out on this? So what's, what are they about? Like, what is, what does that actually mean to sort of find your own style? Sure. So a lot of the books coming out obviously are, fine-tuning people's grammar, because as you said, people maybe aren't necessarily reading as much or are reading in situations where the grammar is not necessarily something that people are focused on, right? Like social media. And so some of it is related to grammar, but a lot of it is also just related to maybe tone or the way in which you convey information stylistically in terms of using analogies, using similes, using uh, how you 
weave in examples or how you present examples. So it's using the tools that you're already using, but Mm -hmm. it's maybe doing them in a different way, a more, for lack of a better word, modernized way, I would say. Um, And I, I, the best examples I can give are within like Supreme court decisions. So if you just read them, um, you know, they're getting much more maybe snarky or sassy and they're also tying in more publicly available information. It's just the sort of that, that kind of component is just changing a little bit, I think, as the court has changed, obviously very much in recent years, but that's purely my opinion. And just what I've observed, I'm sure Kathy probably has some, some better thoughts than I do on that. Yeah, I would say when they're a Supreme Court justice, they can do what they want. <laughs> but when they're a first-year law student, I would be cautious of that. But I agree with you that I think the A section is really where you could be creative. Um, and again, as long as you're grounding it in the law and you can you know, you know, know, point back to a precedent or, or some type of legal authority where you're getting that uh, analogy. But I think you can be really creative um, with analogies and br- make broad analogies that we talk about in the book and not just kind of the narrow analogies, because often your client's facts don't match up perfectly um, with the facts of a case. And students often are uncomfortable with that ambiguity. Like, wait, there's no one case that has all these different you know, facts that my client has. And that's the challenge of it, right? So you can be creative uh, in your A section um, and by using broader kind of that ladder of abstraction that we talk about in the book. Um, to I think it would be dangerous them. to give first year law student the license that a Supreme Court justice has in terms of how they are. <laughs> or any agree? lawyers, really. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, so the part of their point is they're trying to persuade other folks on the bench. And so, you know, there's really no rules for them. They get to do whatever they want to do that they think is going to be best to sort of resolve the issue. But um, I think Kathy said it best. So most lawyers are writing for a particular audience, whether it be a boss or whether it be a client. And so they have to make sure that they are doing what the audience needs. And so some measure of creativity is going to be useful. Um, but I think that if creativity is sort of out first and it's taking precedent over what their audience wants, what the partner wants, what their uh, client wants, I think it's probably not the best idea. But um, I'm all for uh, style, obviously. Uh, good writing is good writing. Well, You both have shared tons of words of wisdom throughout our discussions. If you could share one thing with either new or advanced, you can pick which legal writers or just all legal writers in general, what would it be? One tip. I would say write quickly and edit slowly. And I would say to to be thoughtful about the endeavor. I think the uh, lawyers and legal writers know that they, they write after they've thought about the problem. And so um, I'll just be thoughtful about what the, what the project is and where they want to go with it. Well, thank you both. I think those are both great ideas and great tips and everything we've talked about today will be helpful to our listeners. So I appreciate you both being here. Is there anything else you want to add or anything you want to close on? One more thing is just, you know, I would advise, um, writers to be open to a new way of writing, a new way of thinking, and to be thinking about your audience and not just yourself. 
I think any lawyer who's probably only thinking about themselves is doing something wrong. So I think that that wonderful advice um, applies more broadly than just legal writing. So I think that's a really great note to end on. Well, thank you both for being here. I appreciate your time. Welcome. Let me just say one more thing. Happy 25th anniversary to the book and to create 25 years. Please look forward to the fourth edition forthcoming. And Kathy, let us know what your silver gift is, please, when you get yes, it. I know. <laughs> I'm, still, I'm thinking of silver necklaces. Ah, okay. okay, understood. <laughs> you can wear it with your fold in the cheese t-shirt. It'll be amazing. Everyone That's will love right. it. <laughs> Thank you both. Thanks, Crystal. Thank And that concludes another great discussion with Professors Vincent and Romance. I cannot recommend their book enough. Check out Legal Analysis, The Fundamental Skill, now in its 25th year anniversary. They are so excited about it. And we're excited we're going to be seeing a new edition in the relatively near future. So definitely keep your eye out for that. We have some more episodes coming up for the end of the year, but I cannot believe it's almost the end of 2023. The podcast will be taking a little bit of a break for the Christmas holiday, but we do have a couple of new episodes before the end of the year. So stay tuned. We have a great new series to kick off the beginning of 2024. We'll also be at AALS, Carolina Academic Press. So we hope to see professors there. Now, if you don't already, please give us a follow on social media at Law School Lounge. You'll find us on Twitter or X and on Instagram. And we'll catch you for the next episode. Thanks so much for being here. Mm